0: All right, here we go.
1: Welcome to the Thundering Herd Legends one-on-one podcast.
0: Spotlighting Thundering Herd icons from the gridiron to the courts, the diamond, the pitch, the track, the courses, and beyond.
1: Each show will sit down and go one-on-one with a Thundering Herd sports great. Here's your host, Jason Toll.
0: Our Thundering Herd Legends one-on-one podcast continues here in our series. Jason Toy here with you, joined now by one of Marshall's greats. He uh, had a great career in high school in the Tri-State area, also a fantastic career with the Thundering Herd, and uh, a nice career, a really great career in the NFL as well. We're talking about the great Jason Starkey. Jason, buddy, how you been?
1: Hey. Good afternoon, Jason. Good Night. to good to have you good to talk to you today.
0: Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a while. It's been a, quite a while. I know uh, with you living in Texas, kind of makes it hard to kind of bump into folks around here like we like we do around Huntington.
1: <laughs> it is, you know, and uh, it's it's a double edged sword. You know, it's great opportunity for me here in Texas, uh, around football, and now in, in a new career. Um, I love living in this state, um, surrounded by some like minded individuals. It Almost feels like home in a lot of ways. But you're right, I don't get the opportunity to see old friends like yourself or you know unfortunately go to Marshall games or be a part of that great community so uh, you know that is definitely something I miss Um, so it makes it even better to to join you in a a program like this.
0: uh, Talk about old times. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you getting to Marshall. You went to uh, to Midland. You were one of the first teams at Cabell Midland High School, and but you had Jim Thornburg as your coach there as well coming out of Barbersville. So my question to you is, is how many times can you think in your head that you guys actually passed the football <laughs> with a Jim Thornburg <laughs> offense? <laughs>
1: Oh, I don't know the exact number, but my guess is you can probably count it on two hands. You know, and, uh, you know, it was, it was fun because, you know, he asked Coach T, I was actually talking to him this week. He, he gave me a call. He heard I was in town. So he yeah. called me and got on my butt, about not coming by and see him. So I won't make that mistake again when I come back. But, uh, no, I mean, we were we were a competitive ball club, and, and, and Coach T, yeah, you know, pretty much raised me. You know, I was, I was fortunate enough to be one of the kids that, that grew up in that program on the sidelines as a young man, as a water boy, watching my older brothers play and go through the Barbersville High School program. Um, and I can remember being of age, you know, middle school, kind of seeing the writing on the wall and him being up there in years. And, and, you know, hit me and, and a young man named Eric Smith kind of begged him mm-hmm. to stick around, you know, uh, until, uh, until it was our turn. And Eric might have been the last class that – yeah, coach T, you know, coach, but, you know, as, as far as and Midland, you know, that was, I mean, for a lot of us, I'm sure my friends from Milton, too, it was tough, you know, it was tough being a first anything, really, but especially when you talk about a high school kid, you talk about a, a program, you know, that uh, you had been a part of since you were a child in Barbersville and within Milton, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're in high school, and, and it's your turn, and then, you know, then the deck gets, you know, shuffled up, and, and you got to go be a part of this, at the time, biggest school in the state. Yeah. If I remember correctly, our enrollment was larger than anybody else. In the state, there came a lot of high expectations. You know, we, we were supposed to uh, win all the games and win a state <laughs> championship. And unfortunately for us, you know, we, we didn't measure up to that. And I take a lot of responsibility for that because I was, I was one of the captains on that team. And, you know, we, we, we got beat, if I remember correctly, in the first round of playoffs, which, you know, early exits was not something I was accustomed to under Coach Thornburg. And, that was difficult to be a part of, but grateful for that experience, grateful that part of that, my story uh, met some amazing people, um, you know, as a result of consolidating. And, and I'm proud to be, you know, the first graduating class from Calvin Midland. I love, you know, checking in on time to time with what Coach Sam's doing there. You know, I, you know, I've got I've got friends that's got kids, you know, that's, <laughs> that's going through there, or graduating from there. So I just, you know, explain, see how old I'm getting. But uh, it, it, was, it was a neat experience.
0: Was football something – you talked about your brothers and, and watching them and being on the sidelines. Was this something that was instilled in you early? Was it in the blood uh, for Jason Starkey just after birth on this and that's what you wanted Man, to ever do? T-
1: ever since I can remember, I can remember wanting to be a football player. I mean, it, my earliest and most fondest memories is growing up on the streets of Highland Drive trying to put together a Sandlot game, you know, <laughs> with the Steve Hasses of the world. and You know, I was, I was fortunate enough to hang – around uh, older boys um and i say that because they they kind of helped raise me you know back then we didn't have all the technology so <laughs> you know i think it was nintendo you know i was always trying to get for christmas and santa just never brought that so i, I was forced to go outside like a lot of us and we played a lot of football and, and you know i remember you know cutting out all the newspaper clippings and being a big avid fan of barbersville high school and and uh, held on to every game and and the result, and uh, and just couldn't wait till it was my turn. So yeah, I, football's a big deal. It was what was on the TV every Saturday, every Sunday. Uh, it's what was talked about around the dinner table. My dad played for um, a, a historically great uh, program in Magnolia High School, up in Wetzel County, and he was a three-sport all-state um, athlete who actually played at Marshall. A lot of people don't know that he was uh, mm. on the mid-sixties team and uh, '67 was his last year and you know and so uh, i grew up looking up to my dad and looking up to my brothers and always wanting to kind of follow their footsteps and, and at the same time kind of blaze my own path and create my own legacy if you will
0: i'll say was it written in the stones deal that you uh that marshall was the place for you to go to when you came out of high school
1: you know it wasn't um i come from humble backgrounds and you know I've always had big dreams and never been
0: you know I never visualized
1: myself playing college football to be completely honest um you know I was really concerned at a young age about my ability to to measure up as an act you know as a student you know I had a lot of adversity academically in middle school it's it's crazy that you reached out to me this week (laughs) because my former eighth grade middle school English teacher Mr. Uh, Lake we're going to do a podcast in the Christian community next week and Um, He and Mr. Gerald, my math teacher at the time, were a big part of my story and and turning things around academically. But I I never dreamed of playing college ball. And and when I did catch myself dreaming, it was really, I hate even saying this is sacrilegious, but watching Major Harris, you know, WBU and And with my dad coming from northern part of West Virginia, I got a lot of, unfortunately, I got a lot of family that's Mountaineer fans, you know, (laughs) so, um, yeah, I dreamed of that. And then as, um, as my career in high school started to unfold and, and some, and some neat things were happening for me, and and, and some people were sending me, you know, interest uh, letters. Um, Marshall was a part of that, um, but I kind of had hopes that WV was going to be a part of that. They never were, and uh, so, therefore, the resentment was born, and, uh, <laughs> and it manifested appropriately,
0: and uh, and now uh, I'm grateful for the way things turned out, to say the least. And you got the Marshall, and, you know, you I've known this. We've talked a lot about this in the past with – you know, it's a brotherhood that you developed there. I know you had it there at, the, at Barbersville, and of course, you got to to Midland as well. But when you get to Marshall and you play the four years, you go for championships. You go for, you know, you go for the titles. You know that. And I always the one thing I always remember about with you guys in that team was that final walk you guys did on the field, uh, just with you know with you and Pennington and Chapman and those guys just to, after that bowl game up up in Detroit. And just that final walk you guys did. <laughs> I remember just kind of watching that. I've always
1: been blessed to be surrounded by giants. Yeah. You know, I I felt that way in high school. Um, I felt like I was the lucky kid that just had great teammates. I definitely felt that way at Marshall. Um, And and I felt that way when I went in the NFL. But when I compare all three experiences, you know, whether it be Friday, Saturday, or Sunday football, by far, head over heels, greatest experiences of my athletic career was was there in Huntington playing for the Herd. Um, And it was really – a direct correlation with the relationships that were developed during that time in my life. I mean, you're talking about a, a, an impressionable time in a young man's life um, where, where you can easily be swayed and influenced in, in either direction. And I was just extremely blessed in hindsight to have Chad Pennington, you know, <laughs> taking snaps from me and just to have his father, Coach Elwood Pennington, to be in the locker room mm-hmm. and to have, you know, greats like Doug Chapman. But a lot of greats that came to that team that didn't come there the first year, like a Girardi, Mercer, uh, Paul Tobiasi, uh, You know, I mean, we just we just had a lot of uh, Andre O'Neal, a lot uh-huh. of high character, you know, um, athletes that could play ball. But I just think what made us great is the enormous chip that we had on all of our shoulders, and uh, and the high level of accountability. Now, we often kid when we get together that, and I know this is not really an accurate statement, but we we kind of believe it is. uh, It's probably pretty easy to be Coach Pruitt back then. You know, (laughs) I mean, it probably wasn't too difficult to be an offense coordinator when Chad was a junior or senior. I mean, and all due respect to the coordinators, and Galbraith was one of them, but hell, Our offensive play calling was uh, check with me, and he just tells us when we're going to snap the ball. You know, we get up to the line of scrimmage, and we all, you know, we all look at the defense. I'm having conversations with Williams and the other guys about how we're going to block this and what we think the play is going to be, and then Chad tells us what the play is going to be, and then we execute it, and we had a lot of success. Um,
0: Almost like a Sandlot. Almost like Sandlot. It seemed like.
1: It was, yeah. and the coaches did a great job putting oh, us yeah. in position throughout the week to prepare us mentally for what we're going to like against these guys, but we had, and it's a testament to them, they really gave us a lot of rope, yeah. and um, and we rarely ever hung ourselves with it because we were just, we were just, man, iron sharpens iron. We, we had a high level of accountability, and no one got to slack in anything we did all year long, and if I may transition for a moment, that's what I love most about Coach Huff. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes in from the opening press conference. It's not about play for championships, and I love his play on that concept. It's about be a champion. And everything you do, starting right now, whatever your role is, be a champion. Own it um, and compete within it. And and that's really a testimony to what I got to experience back in the late 90s, which was just really handed to us from all those in the late 80s and the 90s. I mean, it's just it was really next man up. Uh, what are you going to do with this gift you've been given, this opportunity you've been given? Where are you going to take us now? And we we took a lot of pride in that.
0: What's your best memory, best game memory of playing at Marshall? I mean, was a bunch. Because you guys had one of the most storied careers here at the university. But what was the biggest one?
1: I mean, I tell you uh, a few. I got chills just now. Um, a few of them. I got a few of them. But I would say the first one that pops in the mind is, is Clemson. Yeah. Um, and not just – the game in general, it was really that last drive for us. Um, you know, I had a personal foul on that last drive. I may have had two. Um, <laughs> I was there. I remember. I, I, can, <laughs> I can remember we went a hundred and some odd yards um, to cover up for a, a lot of miscues, or, or we'll call it bad calls, to inevitably you know punch the punch the ball in. I think Doug's the one that scored that. We all knew we were going to win. There was never a moment of doubt, not just in that moment, in that drive, but to my earlier point in that entire year Mm -hmm. leading up to that game. To me, there was a vivid memory of a fundraising event that we attended that Coach Sonny Randall was speaking at. He's behind the, the podium, and we all know we got Clemson, you know, week one. He's up there talking about the tradition in Clemson and how they run down off the hill and touch the rock. And he talked about this one young man from uh, Florida State. and Now he came out on the middle of the field and challenged him to come off that hill and all that. And he's talking about Deion Sanders. And in that night and in that in my mind, Starkey, you know, decided I'm going to do that, you know, and so. It's just that was the hyper focus that I as an athlete and we as a team had, you know, six, seven, eight, nine months prior to, you know, what turned out to be one of the biggest games of all our collegiate careers. Um, we knew what it was going to take in January in order to be successful in August. And all of us were willing to pay the piper in order to be prepared for that day. And it was neat when the seconds ticked off, they missed the field goal and we
0: won. Um, and it, it was a lot of fun. That, that, that was a good memory, that one. I had a great one. That was a, a great one for me on the different side because I had transitioned uh, before you got here from trying to be a player and I was a walk on here. But to, I went into the broadcasting side of it at that time and I was actually doing the, uh, the we were doing radio and television for that game. And that was a, a that was such a huge deal for the university because we also got to do a hit on Sports Center as well. Cause that was I was that was a big thing for me because I got to do a hit for Sports Center and ESPN News with Pennington on the field after the game, surrounded by Marshall fans everywhere. That was just a huge deal for us. That was a, that was a landmark win, I think, for for the program.
1: I agree. And it's one of what we now have, you know,
0: many, many, uh, yeah. But yeah. It, it, and I also remember Coach Randall, you know, at the end, and and, and really,
1: I think it was Keith. Yeah, we were um, doing the broadcast yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it wasn't an upset because, you know, Marshall was picked to win the game or something like that. And it just – and again, that's just an example of, yeah. of the ego, really, you know, that we all had. You know, here we're going into Death Valley, playing in front of 80,000 fans with the expectation that we're going to win. And honestly, when the smoke cleared and we all got together in the rooms the following day, there was no patting each other on the back. We were all kind of a little pissed off. And the reason was we got in the red zone three times early in the first half and we came out with two field goals and everyone knew we could be better. Uh, It just turned out that wasn't the type of team that we had that year. You know, our offense rode the the coattails of our defense most of uh, the 99 season, and we were only undefeated because of great performances from our defense. Um, but, uh, it, it, just, that's, that's an example of who we were as a team. It didn't matter who was going to step up, but great players make great plays in big games. And, and I know a lot of us took turns doing that. And it was, it was fun to be a part of that.
0: Jason Starkey hanging out with us here on our Thundering Herd Legends podcast. And Jason, let's make that transition from playing at Marshall to the NFL. You go and you go as an unsigned free agent, uh, or undrafted free agent, uh, with the Arizona Cardinals where you spent your career. What was that like? And, basically you come in when you don't get drafted and you come in as undrafted you're an underdog right away you gotta it's a hard work to make that roster
1: that'll be the golden thread that binds this whole podcast together (laughs) i've been an underdog since day one but you know for me um again never ever dreamed of, of playing on sunday i was just so grateful i got the opportunities to play as much as i did on saturday but as we you know, wind down our season and in that off season, you know, everybody, it was kind of a thing to do is get an agent, you know, and everybody had, you know, Chad had all kinds of them wanting him. And, and, and a lot of my, my brothers did. Um, so I had a guy that was interested in me. I'd never heard of before. I had already applied for the master's program and was accepted and was pursuing, um, my, uh, goals to be a child psychologist and stay at Marshall. And, uh, and I signed on with this guy, and so we go into draft day in the back of our mind thinking there might be a chance you know he's talked to us enough to where we think we could be a late draft picks so my dad and i watch the draft and obviously i don't get picked and, and i was excited for those that did a lot of my teammates did i was really excited for that for that recognition for our program our school and our town uh, but i was also disappointed because i kind of got my hopes up i didn't get a phone call after the draft a lot of my friends did and i just felt like you know, it was slipping away, and, and and I let myself get my hopes up, and it didn't work out, and so I was pretty disappointed. So anyway, fast forward several weeks, and this agent talks me into playing arena football, and uh, which was a big decision for me at the time because, as I mentioned, I was already accepted in the master's program, and I was trying to move on with my life. I mean, football is this kind of sport it's tough mm-hmm. when it's over. It doesn't matter at what level. I mean, it doesn't matter if high school is your last game, college is your last game. I mean, obviously, NFL is your last game. It's tough to let go. It's just – you don't get that, you know, you can't go play a pickup game of ball, you know, in that sport. And so I was transitioning in my mind. So I thought uh, into the next chapter of my life and agent talks me into considering arena ball. He had plenty of people interested when he went through the list, you know, whether it be Albany, New York, I'm like, heck no, I ain't going to New York. It's <laughs> cold Columbus, you know, I'm, I'm out on that. We, we, uh, we decided to go to Tampa Bay and cause that sounded fun, mm-hmm. you know, to a college kid. So I loaded up my little S-10, drove down to, you know, Florida and moved into my little apartment and um, began the process of playing arena football, which is a completely different football game than an actual game of football. And uh, and I wasn't very good at that. I mean, about five weeks, I was in the shift and, and rotating in games, and I played this one game. and all my special performance bonuses were on the defensive side of the ball because they signed me as a center. And so when we were on defense, I'm trying to make money. And so I (laughs) essentially wear myself out. Now I got to play offense. And, you know, I gave up a lot of sacks and and just had a terrible game. And I'm leaving the arena that night thinking to myself, I'd made a huge mistake that I wasn't, you know, wasn't transitioning into reality. And I was holding on to this hope that maybe someday I'll play ball again. And just really to, depressive state i get home and on my answer machine and for those young listeners uh, that's that's a little machine that we used to have in our apartments and houses and it had a tape in it mine was flickering so i checked the messages and uh you know there was a couple random messages and there was a guy named jim stanley he addressed himself as a head scout for the arizona cardinals on there and he said that there was an interest in me coming to their camp and uh the following one was my father And I was still trying to process what I just heard. And my dad pretty much validated everything that Mr. Stanley had just said and basically said, you better call these guys. They called me three times and I don't know where you're at. So (laughs) I call them. We have a conversation about flying out there, you know, getting a physical. And what had happened in their life is they had signed a guy from Ohio State. He didn't pass his physicals. And so I guess I was the next guy on the board. And this was June. And um, so. Funny story, and it's a long one, but I show up to work the next day, having just played the worst game of my life, Um, and the head coach is also the owner, and he's not a kind fella, and so he's getting everybody in the meeting room so we can go over that loss we just had, in large part because of the way I played, and I'm like, hey coach, I need to talk to you for a minute um you never believed but the arizona cardinals called me last night he kind of looked at me like why in the hell would they have called you <laughs> did they see the game and i was, <laughs> and I was like uh, believe it or not they they want me to fly out there you know tomorrow i mean what and asking the dumbest question in the history of my life i was like what do you think i should do <laughs> and he looks at me he said starkey if i was you i'd get on that plane before they look at last night's film <laughs> and uh, and that's what i did so july i think it was june 20th um in 2000 i flew out um to go get a physical for the Arizona Cardinals. And um, and I'll never forget, it was about midnight when I arrived and it was over 100 degrees oh, in Phoenix, yeah. Arizona. And I thought to myself, this is a different planet. Um, <laughs> but all things happen for a reason and, and that story turned out you know, to be exactly what it was supposed to be. So what was I had the, a good time.
0: What was the biggest, uh, before we move on here, uh, talk about your NFL career, what was the biggest adjustment you had to do in playing from the college side to the pro side? Two parts. And, and the first part, is um, the fact
1: that the camaraderie and the fellowship and the accountability and and the brotherhood that I was accustomed to in high school, and especially at Marshall, did not exist at the NFL level. It was absolutely business. You were taught that way. You were spoke to that way. You're in a briefcase, every man for himself. But yet we're going to try to be a part of this team and and have team success. Second part was the mental component of the game. I learned probably more football from my offensive line coach at Arizona than I'd probably learned from the sum of all previous coaches. He was (laughs) an – Very highly intelligent, well-read, educated man who taught me a lot about seeing the big picture. Coverages became a part of what would dictate the box to me and it really helped me grow immature, you know, as a football mind.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the the things that happen, you know, there on the back end of that and what's kind of transitioned for you where you are in your life right now. And obviously you talk a lot about addiction. What, what got you into that? I don't know about that type of question, but what got you to that point that things started to go downhill?
1: Yeah, of course. So my story is, you know, pretty well, uh, recorded, mm-hmm. and for those who may not know, um, you know I injured my shoulder going into the second year of my NFL career playing the chargers in our fourth preseason game uh, what what occurred is my shoulder subluxed, which is to say it popped out popped back in and in that moment i've since learned my <clears throat> my was torn you know from from that joint, and it was a painful experience and I had a decision to make and and, and the decision was you know made based on fear of getting cut. Um, and so I, and I chose to stay in the game, you know, because I'd seen friends of mine who were drafted get cut um, when they, you know, revealed they were injured, whether mm-hmm. it be their knee or whatnot. So I did not want to get cut. I did not want I did not want I don't want that to be over. So um, after that ga- game, pain pills were introduced into my life and um, and they completely rocked my world and changed the way I felt. You know, to that point, I'd been afraid of everything, you know, afraid of failure, uh, afraid of success, Mm -hmm. um, afraid of adjustment, afraid of change, you know, just fear ran my life. And and when I took those Percocets um, on that bus, leaving that stadium in San Diego for the first time in a long time, I wasn't afraid anymore. You know, actually – was kinda fool of fooling myself, you know. I thought, why in the world would they cut me? I mean, this is the fourth preseason game. I just played an entire game against the Chargers with a shoulder that was in excruciating pain and I was afraid they say they were gonna cut me before I took the pills and afterwards I wasn't afraid of anything. Um And I tell you that just to let you know that over the course of my next three years in my career, you know, I became severely addicted to pain medication and anything I could get my hands on that would change the way I feel. And that all started under the pretense of I was doing what was necessary in order to continue this career, this dream opportunity, if you will. But it really manifested into a a severe addiction um, to drugs, and um, and what. Originally, I told myself, I'm just going to take these as I need them or as prescribed and quickly manifested and I need them all the time because I'm emotionally unstable. I don't like the way I feel. I don't like the guy I see in the mirror. I don't like the circumstances, situations in my life, so I know how to get rid of it. I'm just going to um, self-medicate. And so that's what happened. Uh, When the Cardinals let me go in 2003, it was after our fourth regular season game. It was early in the morning. We just convened our team meeting. Um, my assistant O-line coach, Coach Mike Devlin, um, you know, brought me aside and told me what no NFL guy wants to hear. You know, the head coach wants to see you and, and grab your playbook. And that's pretty much code in that league for your asses getting ready to get fired, you know. And it, it was probably 8 in the morning at that time, and I was already heavily medicated, you know, as I had been for years. Um, they let me go, and, and I leave the facility that morning with a trash bag of all my cleats and stuff and, and no blueprint for living. Um, and in a, in a in a severe addiction um they told me they were gonna put me on ir um they were going to fix my shoulder and they did and uh, and i got paid the rest of that year's contract which was significant uh, but then OxyContins came into my life and and that took me to an even deeper and darker place and even though i was newly married uh i was newly unemployed <laughs> at the same time i had this addiction and life spiraled completely out of control and, and and if the story goes for me. I woke up in my car in July in two thousand and six. I'd been living there for over six weeks, going on two months, you know. And that's right
0: around this time. My question for you, Jason, is the fact of you know you talked about how in in, in the injury and then the you know the Percocets and it went from there. Was it readily available? And I am not this is nothing going against the NFL or anything like that, but was it easily available for you guys to get that at that point?
1: Yeah, I never wanted for anything. I mean, I, and, and there was doctors that were trying to do the right thing in my life, but I was a, I was a manipulating athlete, so I would ask one and ask another. And and then honestly, you know, I, I was on a team full of guys doing the same thing. And so when they would quit giving to me, I'd go talk to a teammate and, and get what I needed in order to get by. Um, you know, and it wasn't just that. It was also shots. I would, you know, we did what we had to um, in order to – and in our minds, put food on the table as as crazy as that might sound. Um, I I always thought it was funny when, when a millionaire would say, Oh, you know, don't take food off my table. I'm like, (laughs) I've been to your house, buddy. I don't think that's a problem. But, um, no, I mean, for me, it got bad enough where I woke up that car, I was homeless. I was separated from my wife. I was unemployed. I tried to have jobs. I'd been in the medical sales profession. I'd bought real estate and none of it worked. Um, it was all external, um, it was all external attempts at trying to fix an internal problem. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sleeping in my car, and, and, and out of nowhere, I get a call from my wife. We're separated at the time. And she had kicked kick you out at that time, right? She did. Yeah. Yeah. She she had she had seen enough. Yeah. And when she tells her story and gives her testimony, um, she'll say that you know, when she hit bottom, she realized she had to get out of the way so I could hit mine. And it was one of the greatest blessings um, that she had given me. It took a while for this old hard head. Because, I mean, everything we've talked about up to this moment, even in this podcast, Jason, is mm-hmm. how when adversity came in Jason's life, Jason just worked harder and then eventually overcame it.
0: For you, I mean, obviously, that was a it was a, a blessing from God to get kicked out of the house. I mean, that was – and then it kind of – you talked about getting the phone call, but that's kind of where – life change where you had, to, you had to hit the bottom to be able to climb back up to the top.
1: And I did. And even though I was in a state where the bottom should have been easy to recognize, I was in this world of delusion where I thought, you know, life was going to be different. I just had to come out it a different way. So the phone call was Larkin and an intervention was in the mix. Um, and unbeknownst to me, um, she'd been talking to an old teammate, you know, and Chad Pennington and, And even though Chad was going into his, uh, I think it was his eighth training camp for the Jets, they had been having conversation about the nature of my condition. And he grew concerned to the point that he called his father and mom. And and they they orchestrated an intervention, which led to me getting flown back to Knoxville, Tennessee, and getting checked into a rehabilitation uh, center community there um, called Cornerstone. Um, you know, Coach P picked me up at the airport. Sean Saunders, uh, the best man at my wedding, and he was an offensive lineman brother of mine all through Marshall, was the guy that Chad flew out to pick my, <laughs> pick my ass up because they didn't trust me to get on the plane, and that was pretty wise by them. It just it was a combination of a bunch of Herd brothers coming together to save somebody. And, um, and you know, when I go home and I'm coming home in June to, to be, be honored with getting to have the team's ear, Mm -hmm. you know, and Doug Chapman's putting that together and coach Huff's blessed me with that, you know, and as I work on what that message is going to look like, it really, the the only thing I can give him with sincerity is my experience. And my experience in going through that program is I had the opportunity to establish relationships that were meaningful enough that, you know, literally 10 years after I left, they showed back up at my worst and saved my life. And, um, and that's that's what that's what football can do for anybody and that's especially what martial football can do for a young athlete. So when I see a kid leave you know it breaks my heart and I almost take it personal cuz to me it's like darn it man he missed it. He he didn't really have the experience that I was blessed to have and and you know and so I don't know it's going to be fun to come home and and have a conversation. Hopefully get to know some of these young men on a more intimate basis, but that's that's my story. You know, I went to treatment and And I haven't had a pain pill since, (laughs) you know, I've been sober since July 25th, 2006, and I've had the opportunity to speak and work in the recovery community all over the world. I mean, even in 2020, um, when the whole world shut Mm -hmm. down, um, I'm I'm zoom and giving presentations in London and the United Kingdom about, you know, recovery and sobriety and, 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 and speaking in that anonymous fellowship about what it's done for me. So it's just, it's just really cool. Um, I've had some of the most incredible people come into my life through that anonymous fellowship and through, you know, they you know, <laughs> I, I tell a lot of, them, like, you know, this might be the worst day of your life, no doubt. But, uh, it, it also could be a day that we celebrate for the rest of your life. And, uh, and that's, that's what July 25th
0: is for me. I wear a, uh, a bracelet or a little jelly thing here, whatever these things are called that says I am second. And I know when you talked about Coach P and uh, talking about Elwood uh, Pennington, Coach Pen Penning- or Chad Pennington's dad, who was a longtime coach, a high school football coach, and obviously very influential on you. What else? How did he open your eyes to Christ when you when you got out, or why you were there too? I'd say, oh yeah, a hundred percent. While I was there, so um,
2: basically, I'm in the sober living environment, and uh, Coach Pennington would drive all the way across Knoxville, pick me up on the weekends, and bring me to his home, and and, and and, you know, just facilitate an opportunity for, for me to do odd jobs like clean the gutters. I've got a great gutter story. I know we're pressed on time, but Chad would laugh if he hears this. Or spread mulch, you know. And while I'm doing these, these, these odd tasks, you know, he's talking to me about what Christ has done in his life. He's not talking at me. He, he, he's not condemning me in any way. He's actually getting vulnerable with me and sharing with me, um, you know, in a way, in, in a light that I hadn't seen him before. And, um, and it helped me identify with, with Coach P in a different way, which uh, allowed Christ to, you know, come into my heart, you know, in, in a different and, and, and meaningful way. And so, you know, I give, you know, I give Coach P, I give Christ all, all the glory and credit, but he used Coach in a special way in order to bring me back to the cross. Um, it was a vulnerable time in my life, and, you know, I believe – that's that's how he finds us. I mean, even even when he walked the earth, he's out there looking for the fishermen and the tax collectors, you know. And <laughs> I kind of identify with those guys. And, um, and and coach saw that me and and um, man, we had a special six months. Um, I, I did that every weekend for six months. They'd bring me over on Sunday. We'd watch Chad play. Um, you know, football was it was tough for me to watch back then. I really felt like I'd messed up in a big way and squandered a great opportunity with my drug use. And so it was tough, you know. Uh, But they helped me, you know, heal that wound through rooting for my boy. Um, We'd all dress in our green and white. And uh, and Denise would fix a great meal. And and we'd sit there and break bread and, and watch, you know, watch my best friend, you know, compete at the highest level. And they just loved me, never judged me. And, and they really did that until I was ready to stop judging myself and start loving myself. And uh, it was a great example of how to walk the talk, you know. Yeah. Coach would always say, keep your eyes on Jesus, you know. And and um, so even when I left Knoxville, um, up until, you know, you know, he graduated and left us, uh, he was always somebody I'd call for counsel. He was always somebody I'd call for wisdom. Um, and he was always saying the right things at the right times in my life.
0: Is it uh, the relationships? You know, we talked about the brotherhood in the past. That is what the the big thing is here. That is truly the biggest example of a brotherhood that you can come up with.
2: It is. And, and as I was mentioning before, um, when I do get opportunities to talk to young people that are considered Marshall or at Marshall, um, it's really what makes our school so unique. Uh, we're a small community of blue-colored families. Um, who just love, you know, our story, embrace our tragedy, and embrace our successes that we've had since, you know, November 14th, 1970. And, and I just couldn't think of a better community to be a part of. Um, we're humble, but proud. It's a weird combination, but we do it brilliantly. And, and these young boys have an opportunity within a community like Huntington in and in a, in a place like Marshall to establish relationships that are so meaningful that could impact their lives in a positive way for the rest of their life. I believe football and college football in general has that capacity, but a lot gets lost. And I've been in big locker rooms and big time programs. And I'm telling you right now, even on Sundays, a lot gets lost when when there's a lot of glory being sought after. Um, you know, and, and and I just think that, you know, we have a beautiful combination of all the necessary ingredients back home at Marshall and especially now under Coach Up, and especially with him not only embracing the, the history and the tragedy and the success, but embracing the alumni in a way where he's hired a bunch of us. He's wanting all of us to be involved. I've never felt more welcome when I came home for the green and white game than I did. He's the head of that and, and the driving force behind that, and that is by no means taking away anything from his you know, the men that came before him, it's just really, you know, it's just really celebrating his approach. And, you know, I love our school and I love the the men and women that come and lead our programs, but I'm really excited about the direction we're heading under his watch. He's an outgoing, outspoken, all inclusive, minority head coach that's got me fired up all the way in <laughs> South Texas. I'm ready to grab my part of the rope and pull it as hard as I can. So <laughs> That's where I'm at on Coach Up. I can't. Navy can't get here quick enough. I'm ready to go to Annapolis right now.
0: <laughs> well, you know, in, in life for you, as we get ready to wrap things up, you know, you go from the bottom, like we talked about getting back to the top. You were the underdog that uh, had everything going against you there. And a lot of it was your, and you admit to this, a lot of it's your, your own self making in that aspect. But, I mean, life now for Jason Starkey is a good one. You coach high school football, which I know was very hard for you to, to leave, but it was an opportunity for you to be. To be the father, be able to coach your son, to be the husband that uh, you need to be to your family as well, too. And, you know, I would assume life is pretty darn good right now for Jason Starkey.
2: Yeah, and as we wrap this up, Jason, thank you for having me on. But I will say this, man, if, if my testimony is representative of anything, it's redemption, restoration, and grace. You know, everything the enemy meant to steal, kill, and destroy in Jason Starkey's life and the lives around him, a loving God through the grace of Christ Jesus has restored tenfold. You know, I never dreamed when I was a young boy on the sidelines of Barbersville High School that I was going to grow up and be an addict and an alcoholic. But now that I'm one that's been in long-term recovery, I've got a life I could have never dreamed of. That woman that loved me enough to kick me out of that house, she'll be home cooking dinner tonight. I've got two kids that's never seen me drunk or high. I've been trusted to run a multi-million dollar company. I went from being homeless to being paid to build homes. I mean, I just can't think uh, of, of another way to paint this beautiful picture of what God is capable of. I mean, I'm a believer in my life's a testimony that all things are possible through Christ Jesus, and and I'm grateful to the, the testimonies like Coach Pennington, Chads, the Saunders showing up. The Mike Williams's. I mean, I've got. I've always been surrounded by giants, not just on the football field, but in life. And today, that is as true as it's ever been. I was over a million dollars in debt, and I don't know anybody at that. You know, and it's not to glorify me in any way; it's to glorify him. I get. I get to speak at churches all over this country, um, and I've got plenty of testimonies from marital testimony to financial testimony. But it's all about. When you live life as outlined in the book, the Bible, then um, you know great things are possible, and it doesn't happen overnight, but it does in fact happen. And there's a peace that exists within me that you know I always sought after through drugs and alcohol, but never could achieve. And I had to pay a lot of money, and I always missed the mark. You know, I wake up and and the mark is readily available. You know, through uh, prayer and meditation. So thank you so much for having me on here. I know I talked a heck of a lot tonight. <laughs> That's we had to. All right. We had some uh, technical difficulty, but I think you've navigated those waters very well. And, uh, and you know, I'm just grateful that you would include me in what you're doing back home.
0: Hey, man, we're just trying to, to continue to build that brother and sisterhood because, you know, through all of uh, the community as well, but also great stories like yourself. And, uh, buddy, I I know you and I haven't seen each other a lot over the years, but it's uh, one of those deals that uh, you're always a great guy to me. Uh You know, on the broadcasting side of things, you know, when you were in your playing years and always uh, we always treat each other like like a brother. So I appreciate you. Love you. Uh, Your testimony, obviously, is a a good inspiration, a great inspiration for a lot of people out there. And I hope they uh, I know that uh, people can hear that. We'll be able to try to let them know that there is some light at the end of the tunnel and be able to try to get things turned around in their lives. Jason, we appreciate you, buddy.
2: I appreciate you, too, man. Love you, too. And, and thanks again for having me
0: on. Well, there you have it, folks. The great story of Jason Starkey, a Thundering Herd legend and uh, all-around great guy. And one guy that really folks can draw some inspiration from as uh, they try to battle addiction and try to get their life turned back around with the uh, the power not only of prayer but of family but also of brother and sisterhood as well uh, to make uh, everything happen there for Jason Starkey. Folks, thanks for checking in to our Thundering Herd Legends one-on-one podcast. Until next time. Jason Toy here with you. God's blessings. Be safe and go hurt. You've been listening to the Thundering Herd Legends one-on-one podcast. Thank you for checking us out. And don't forget to subscribe to
1: this podcast. If you want to contact us, you can email us anytime, studio at bigbuck1015.com or find us online at bigbuck1015.com. The Big Buck Thundering Herd Legends one-on-one podcast has been a production of Kindred Digital, Toy Production Services, and your home for the legends.
0: Big Buck Country
1: 101.5.